I'm going to marry him. Do you hear me? Last night never happened, and I'm going to marry him, and you and I are going to take this to our coffins. I can't do that. Why not? I'm in love with you. Snap out of it! How's your weekend? Weekend was okay. We went to Water Country, a couple of my friends and I, and that was really fun. It was very, very busy though. We had a lot of problems. We wound up having to wait like two hours for food. Jesus Christ. And it was a mix of like it was really busy and they were really understaffed. So I, I did what any good girlfriend would do. Uh, got home, made Greg go pick up our takeout and made him watch Dirty Dancing, <laughs> which he had never seen. So is is Dirty Dancing like an official comfort movie for you? No. I watched it for the first time maybe two years ago. It was January of 2020. Okay. And I was really taken with it. And I was really intrigued by like the staying power that it's had. And then the Roe v. Wade decision was overturned. And my immediate thought was, Mm. shit, I should watch Dirty Dancing again. Yeah. Because I don't know if you've ever watched the Netflix show, The Movies That Made Us. But they have a Dirty Dancing episode. And in it, they're like, yeah, it's actually estimated there is a huge increase in women supporting abortions. And men as well. After that movie came out. Yeah. Which I I think about that a lot. I don't want to, like, spoil it. Because I feel like multiple people I've spoken to, including Greg, was like, yeah, Dirty Dancing is just like romance and dancing, right? Like, that's that's all there is. (laughs) Like, a lot of people don't know. What it's about? Yeah. And... And Cat, you can put you on that list as well. This is a movie that was like heavy in reruns, but I just never watched it. Just chose not to. Well, I feel like it's also like, for whatever reason, it's like in the zeitgeist as like a woman movie. Yeah. Which upsets me. I think this movie suffers from like this weird marketing problem where people are like, it's a chick movie. It's about a chick and she falls in love with Patrick Swayze and they dance. And like, that is maybe a third that's being generous of what this movie is about. A fourth? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I feel like talking about this movie, first of all, and like the way that this thing was made is insane. <laughs> so, uh, would you would you find out about how it got made? Yeah. So first of all, Netflix has this series called The Movies That Made Us. And at the time it came out, it was really nice because all of the movies on The Movies That Made Us were also on Netflix. So you could, yeah. like, watch them one-to-one. It's not like that anymore. So, like, just be mindful of that. But one of the ones they have is Dirty Dancing. And this movie was rejected by everyone. Yeah. Yeah, I read that. Nobody did it. This is the first Kenny Ortega, like, big project and all this other stuff. He did the choreography. And obviously he does a beautiful job. It's a huge part of the movie. Yeah. And, like, all of these people are, like, mostly Broadway people or, like, Patrick Swayze was, like, really the get. But Gray was fairly new. Like, everyone was fairly new. Or, you know, from Broadway, whatever, whatever. 
And eventually they finally gave the movie, like they, they screened it. And that's when it got distributed. Yeah. This this was Vestron's first like public release, which is wild. And then to think about <laughs> the following that this movie has. Yeah, it's it's one of those 80 staples. I didn't put it on the, the list to watch, but when you said uh, when we originally planned to watch Roxanne, Roxanne, and you said it was a little tight, I just said, you know what, let's just go with it. Let's go with the renowned classic, Dirty Dancing. When I say that I was like, I had cringed myself into a ball. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> 13 minutes into this thing, and I was like... I... I don't know that I can do this. <laughs> I didn't know it was that bad. <laughs> oh, man. I saw you Dirty Dancing 5 saws on Letterboxd, and so it made the pivot very easy. Yeah, so you had never seen Dirty Dancing. No. Like, so, I like I knew the ending. I, well, the, the well, of one course I knew the ending. Everybody yeah, that's but, ever seen an episode of The Simpsons or Saturday Night Live or any, like, show that has parodied it, which is like most things. Even High School Musical has jokes about Dirty Dancing yeah. in it. Like every everything. But that's the reason that people just can dismiss it as a dancing chick flick. Because that's what it's marketed as. So how was your experience? So you expected a chick flick, probably a romance. Just a straight up the middle kind of romance, right? Where they learn to dance and they fall in love. and ah. Yeah, so... I heard like a like a podcast and I forget which one it was. It was sometime like this year that kind of talked about it and it did kind of step on it. I only kind of knew about the abortion bit of it. I didn't know like anything else really. And so and watching it, I'm still actually really kind of shocked that that even the scene whereas she's on the bed, they had to bring the the father in like even like now, like I was like, wow, they they actually took it there. Okay, they're paying for like an illegal abortion in this movie. Okay, we're gonna go somewhere. That's tight. But the, my first impression of this movie was obviously, well, I mean obviously, but when she sneaks into the workers' bungalow and the music is ripping and everyone's what what we call in my day, we call it the freak. <laughs> everyone's like bumping and grinding, and I'm like. Oh wow, okay. Maybe if we put this in the commercial, not the, the sappy dance stuff, maybe I would have gave it a shot. Why'd they learn to do that? Where? I don't know. Kids are doing it in the basements back home. Wanna try it? Come on, baby. I bet some mothers went to see this with their daughters and like this fostered a huge amount of important conversation. But yeah. also I think this is, in the way that a lot of sports movies do, maybe the best portrayal of how becoming good at something can help a person. Yeah. Like, you watch this young woman blossom in the course of nine days. This movie takes place over nine days. <laughs> yeah. But, like, sometimes that's literally how it happens. Yeah. And I think the, the like, oomph and aplomb with which Jennifer Grey, but also Patrick Swayze, just attacks this thing is amazing yeah and not even just the dancing the ferocity with which johnny protects penny the ferocity with which baby goes to bat for her she tries to talk to robbie 
to try to get him to listen. She knows that if he's going to listen to anybody, it's going to be her. Yeah. I love that. And I love that even though it doesn't work out perfectly, it does work out because this movie has a really good grip on the realities of the world and of situations, but also still comes back to the belief that like the world is fundamentally a little bit good. And I think that's really important. It's not hopeless. Penny is in the end scene dancing. Yeah. And I do love the, the idea of if you just see something's wrong, it doesn't matter. Like if you know, these people are the strangers or not, it doesn't matter if they're whores or not, you know, they're not, no, I don't, I wouldn't constitute, you know, the woman that got pregnant a whore, but just kind of saying. Penny is but, not a whore. Yeah, definitely not. But just the idea of, and that, especially for that time, for someone that is going through immense, you know, problems that you're just going to step up to help. Maybe it involves like reaching out to other people for help, but at least you're the con do it, you know, for change in this kind of way. There's a moment where she says to her father, you told me whenever possible, I should just help somebody. Yeah. But I only now realize that you meant people like us, mm. but like yeah. I, I did it. I did it. I'm helping somebody. That said, one of the things that I think is really interesting is apparently in one draft of the script, and I don't know if this was the draft they used for shooting or not, but obviously it was fixed later. In the initial draft of the script, Johnny was 20. Oh, he's, yeah. He's, 20, he's 24 in the movie canonically, but to me there's something so much sadder about the idea of him being 20 and having already been through this much life. Ooh. Patrick Swayze doesn't really look 20. He was 35 oh, at the time. Well, I was um, gonna say he does not at all. And Jennifer Grey was 26, and apparently she hated him so much at Red Dawn during Red Dawn that yeah. Patrick Swayze had to like send her flowers for like a month to try to convince her to take the project. <laughs> Which honestly, what a power move! Like she clearly knew this could be a huge vehicle for her, but she's like, oh god, him. My favorite scene in the movie is when they're doing you know, the, the arm caress and it's the multiple takes, the but laughing. it was literally like, yeah, but it was like, not, it was not like in the script. Like, Oh yeah. No, you can see, cracking. you can see him getting annoyed and you can see, pissed. and you can see her like it's, but it's, I think it's the stuff like that, that makes the movie like last. Yeah. Like if you ask me like, is their relationship creepy and predatory? Now, like oh, it, yeah. on paper, it absolutely should be. But watching them like organically, like actually fall in love in the movie, no. Yeah. Literally, no. Yeah. I I would go to bat for these people. Yes, definitely, definitely. To me, the thing that I appreciate so much about the movie is it would be so easy to make the dad just bad. Yeah. It would be so easy to make him just the asshole, just the guy. He could have literally been the roadblock after the first half of the movie. Like, I actually, I thought that was going to happen. Yeah. I, I thought that was yeah. going to happen. And Jerry Orbach plays it so well that, like, when he finds out about Robbie and he snaps. Snatched the bag away. <laughs> Greg audibly gasped because he thought it was, like, going to be like, a, well, she's nobody and he's somebody. So it's okay. Like, he plays it as a man who's deeply conflicted, but more about his daughter than the situation. Yeah. But there's a line that always sticks in my head where he goes, I wish you had just come to me instead of like sending her off to the, the chop doc. Yeah. And I think about that a lot. 
He just says it under his breath. He's muttering while he's taking care of Penny. And there's also a throwaway line where he said he came to they, they said he came to visit her every day. Yeah. Until he knew she was better. It shows that he's a good man, even if he's struggling with the fact that he's not a dad to a little girl anymore. Yeah. People don't talk about that performance enough, in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, and again, and actually, I want to talk to you about bodies, bodies, bodies also. But I think the idea and the problem kind of was marketing and how marketing can fail something. I would say more so this than bodies, bodies, bodies. But I, I think the marketing did kind of not necessarily portray, but it, it kind of failed Dirty Dancing, I would say. I also think, though, that when Dirty Dancing came out, a bunch of people who perhaps needed Dirty Dancing in a way they didn't know they needed it yet went in one of two directions. Oh, my God, it's called Dirty Dancing. We can't let our children see this. Or <laughs> they read a review and went, there's an abortion in that. We can't let our children see this. And like, I think that also failed the movie. Yeah. But I think that the mothers who got to go see it show their daughters, show their daughters, show their daughters. My generation of girls, I feel like Grease was really the sleepover movie for a while. Yeah, I can see that. But then there was a moment right around, like, I'd say maybe age 13 where it hard switched to this. Yes. <laughs> it's like, oh, you like singing and also the past? Have you seen Dirty <laughs> Dancing? But also, I remember even then, it was a movie of like, yeah, we have to wait until my parents go to bed so we can watch Dirty Dancing. I mean, they, <laughs> they was bumping and grinding, boy. Yeah, but like, I think one of the things that the movie does so well is that none of that is bad. Yeah. The only thing that happens around sex and sexuality that is bad is that Robbie let a girl believe – two girls, actually, believe that he was in love with them yeah. while either sexually taking advantage of them or another person. Yeah, yeah. The only thing that's bad about sex and sexuality is when it's manipulated. Yes, yes. Because when they slam cut to them, like, naked in bed the next morning, there's no, oh, my dad is going to kill me. Oh, I can't believe we did this. Uh, uh, uh. No. It happened. They both enjoyed it. Cool. <laughs> Even the, you know, adultery that's happening. I mean, it's judgment because this woman is cheating on her husband. But the actual act of sex, I feel like the movie isn't necessarily judgmental of that. Because this guy, he was putting in work. He said two or three times a day. <laughs> like, God, with different people, too. Like, he was getting it in, boy. Well, uh, yeah, that's what the, the dancing helps with stamina. <laughs> Dancing house with stamina. <laughs> but also, like, can can we just talk about how unfairly good-looking Patrick Swayze is in this movie? Look. We'll just play all the boings now. Can you just, like, layer 96 <laughs> boing sounds on top of each other so there's, like, a mega boing? You know, we've covered a lot of movies on this here podcast, and... <sighs> The scene where he goes to talk to baby's dad, where he has the leather jacket, the slacks, and the glasses with the motorcycle boots, motorcycle boots. Or whatever. Listen. That may be top five most attractive white men we've talked about on this podcast. Maybe top three. <laughs> Everything fit him so fucking well. Everything was. <laughs> Holy shit. 
Yeah. <laughs> Yo, people are not just like that anymore. That's so, so fucking crazy. Uh, but, like, Jesus Christ. Like, he's so good looking. And also, <laughs> at one point, you see his calves, and his calves are, like, diamond-shaped. He's, like, 0% body fat in this movie. But, like, no, that, I wouldn't say that, though, because, like, his torso is not, like, built in the way modern superheroes are, like, built, you know? Well, yeah, he, he's not. There's, there's a great essay that I read recently called Everyone is Beautiful and No One is Horny. And it's about how, like, <laughs> Marvel movies have all these, like, specimens of, like, that's a, that's peak, a great fucking title. peak female and male-ness. But yeah. they're somehow, like, not horny. And I think that this movie does a beautiful job of marrying the tactility of sex appeal with actual sex. Yeah. In a way that also feels realistic. Like, don't I, get me uh, wrong. Most Catskill dance instructors are not a Hollywood nine. They're, like, a Hollywood <laughs> six or seven, maybe. But, like, Patrick Swayze just came in and was like, hold my beer. But, yeah, even in the beginning, though, in the first dance scene, like you can say, like I would probably estimate ninety-five to a hundred percent of those people were professional dancers, but they all still look like regular schmegler attractive people that would have been dancing in like eighties clubs at the time. So this movie gets the sex appeal and sexuality right on the nose. Even the the adulterous milf, she was she was pretty fucking hot. Yeah, but like. It do be like that sometimes. And they all just look like, and I mean this as a compliment, right? Like, they look like hot people who fuck. Yes. Whereas, like, a lot of, like, modern movies, they do not look like people who fuck. Yes. Never even mind, like, the bumping and the grinding and all that shit, right? But part of the reason this movie is so erotic, like, especially in the dance scenes, is because they're just, like, two hot people who fuck getting close to each other. And, like, touching each other. The point of some of these dances is to convince people you fuck without, like, not necessarily <laughs> be fucking. But, like, they're clearly leaning into that so hard. And, like, Jesus Christ. One of the early scenes when, like, the the young, like, arrogant, annoying guy, he's looking at Swayze and uh, Penny dance, and he's like, well, no one wants to see that. I'm like, boy, you have not equated dancing to sex yet. <laughs> you are too young for this boy. It does also do a really good job of, like, encapsulating the echelons at a resort like that. Yeah. The idea that the waiters always go, there's the entertainment staff. And the entertainment staff is always like, watch out for the waiters. The guy is like, oh, well, the waiters are going to work their way up in the world because they have the value in the world. And, oh, there's entertainment that's still a thing i just think it's really interesting right that like he's got like a skill and a craft and he's clearly got a gift for teaching what do any of the waiters have money a degree (laughs) but what they're doing is considered a more respectable job than this man's literal life's work yeah that he is in a league of his own with that is wild to me and when the guy, uh, I think his name is Neil, who's about to, like, run the resort from his grandfather, comes up to him. And he just goes off. He's like, I have this thing. I've been waiting for you to ask me about this. And he just, like, busts out this groundbreaking choreography. Yeah. He's like, I've just been waiting for somebody to ask me to use this. And then he's like, nah, I want, like, this. And he's like, oh, okay. 
but like I think it also encapsulates like that that desperation to be seen is so much of theater and movie making and the idea of if I just get the right set of eyeballs on me once, yeah, something's gonna happen. And I think because of the story of this movie and how it got made, that energy is palpable in everything. Everyone is giving the performance of, if I just get one good set of eyes on me, I got it made. <laughs> Except Patrick Swayze, who pretty much clearly is here because he's like, I want to learn a new skill and be hot. <laughs> and, and everyone in the movie's like, yes! And the energy is great. I know that he and Jennifer Grey did not get along. But, like, you could have fooled me. There are hundreds of people <laughs> who, like, like each other more in real life that I do not believe fall in love with each other like that. Yeah, yeah. It's truly something else. Yeah, I think Jennifer Grey did a great job, and it it was so good with this, and also even with you know Ferris Bueller, I was questioning, you know, why was she not more of a thing in the '90s, and it it got kind of dark for for her, unfortunately, especially around this movie. Did you kind of see what happened with her, like kind of around like when the movie released? No. It's kind of sad. She was dating Matthew Broderick from Ferris Bueller's, which, you know. Her brother? I know. That's a little touch and go there. But uh, what happened was they were vacationing in Northern Ireland, and he got into a wreck where people died. And he was, like, fucked up. She was, like, fine. But, like, that happened, like, a couple of weeks later, the movie released. So she didn't even really enjoy the release of it. And in like the late 80s, she had like a botched surgery, which one of the fucked up things was like, I was wondering, I was like, I legit, it happened like within 40 seconds. I was wondering why she didn't really blow up. I had a thought was maybe because she didn't have like the, the standard Hollywood look. And then I read the news. She had like the rhinoplasty surgery and it kind of basically like derailed her career, which made me feel very bad while enjoying this movie. Yeah, I'm just reading through all this right now. She started acting very young. Yeah, her mom was Dirty an Dancing was the first uh, film to sell a million copies on video. Nice. She got a rhinoplasty. The first one was a botched job. She had to get a second one. Yeah. Apparently, like people didn't recognize her. So she went from being worried that she wasn't going to, like, land to completely destroying her brand recognition. Yeah, man, that really fucking sucks. I went in the operating room a celebrity and came out anonymous. It was like being in witness protection or just plain invisible. Yeah, you can even see the pictures. Like, it's kind of apparent that she definitely looks way different but apparently the publicness of this nose job is what she actually blames with like ruining her career more than anything else oh yeah it's not for lack of talent i would definitely say that but also as uh, but like specifically people like making fun of the fact that she did get a nose job but as as someone else who truly hated like i hated my nose for years probably the better part of of, of a decade at least because one of my first thoughts is remembering being like, oh, I'm self-conscious about this. It took a lot of time and a lot of therapy for me to decide not to to do anything about it. Yeah. From my, like, first allowance through to, like, 
the end of my like odd jobs in college. I had a jar saved up so I could get my nose fixed. Mm. And I'm not even famous. <laughs> yeah. Like that was just because I didn't like it. Yeah. I can only imagine the pressure of all that. Yeah. Public pressure, internal pressure, you know, it's it's a bitch, man. It's a bitch. Yeah. Apparently yeah. also, though, she had pretty severe whiplash and like yeah. from the car accident, which is yikes. She went like two years without making a movie. And then the movies that she came back to were like really straight to video. So at that at that point, it was just kind of over for at least like the apex of what her career would have been. Yeah, that must be so hard. Yeah. I mean, it does look like, though, she's had, like, a pretty solid, like, career as a working actress. She's not, like, a star, but, like, she probably makes enough money in residuals to, like, live comfortably. Yeah. And this is a Jennifer Grey appreciation, so. I should I should get her book. Out of the Corner. <laughs> All right. Okay. Hey, what's up, everybody? WWE Hall of Famer, The Godfather here. Special shout-out to B-Hyphen and Handsome Bane for the WrestleCast Power Hour, and it's available everywhere, podcasts or streams. So everybody, check them out. You know The Godfather will, and it's time once again for everybody at the Hyphen Podcast Group to come aboard the Ho! Sweaty marks. Nothing is anybody's fault, but things happen. Look. This wood is fake. Five years ago, I was engaged to be married, and, uh, and Johnny came in here, and he ordered bread for me. And I said, oh, okay, some bread. <laughs> and, and I put my hand in the slicer, and it got caught because I wasn't paying attention. The slicer chewed off my hand. <laughs> it's funny, because when my fiance found out about it, but she found out that I had been maimed, she left me for another man. That's the bad blood between you and Johnny? Yes, that's it. Yeah, but I, that's not Johnny's fault. I don't care! I ain't no freaking monument to justice! I lost my hand! I lost my bride! Johnny has his hand! Johnny has his bride! You want me to take my heartbreak, put it away, and forget it? Is it just a matter of time before a man opens his eyes and gives up his one dream? His one dream of happiness? This is the most tormented man I have ever known. I'm in love with this man, but he doesn't know that. Because I never told him, because he could never love anybody since he lost his hand and his girl. Speaking out of the corner, your guy Nick Cage and Moonstruck. <laughs> why, why is he my guy? I'm confused by this pivot. Um... <laughs> Is it because I mean, he's Italian? <laughs> Cat, you. <laughs> before you explain it, let me set it up. 
So you said that Moonstruck, the movie we're about to talk about right now, you said that this movie makes fun, is making fun of Italians. And I, I like wanted to see like who made this movie. And it's like a, some guy from Toronto <laughs> who directed it. An Irish guy wrote it. Olympia Dukakis, she's fucking Greek, playing basically like she's Jewish. <laughs> oh man! The only thing that it got right is that it clearly has a large amount of disdain for Sicilians, which all <laughs> non-Sicilian Italians have. Hilarious. Well, I can't say the only thing, but I would say tonally, that's the thing it got the most right. Okay, all right. So, <laughs> I was just wondering, like, maybe, like, some New York Italians wrote this and, you know, but... <laughs> no, nope. no, as nope. soon as I looked up the writing staff about 20 minutes in, I went, oh. A guy named John Patrick. I was like, god damn. <laughs> but also, like, they're going to see La Boheme, right? I believe so. Yeah, that's French. No. Yeah, La Boheme is a French opera. <laughs> Hold on, let me check. Now, yeah. there are a lot of La Boheme references in the movie, which is fine, but like La Boheme is French, takes place in France. It's what Moulin Rouge is based on. It's what Rent is based on. No, but it's Italian, but it's set in Paris. So, I, I don't know what to make of this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's about French people and French <laughs> suffering, and like I said, if you've seen Moulin Rouge, surprise, you know the plot of La Boheme. If you've seen Rent, surprise, you know a revised version of the plot of La Boheme. Like, mm, mm. And also, I feel like a lot of people are like, oh, you're Italian. And, like, they immediately go, like, opera, Catholic, uh. food, like, wine. Uh. Everybody goes to one restaurant. They all live in the same house, neighborhood, bad luck. The luck thing is very Irish, by the way. Like, we don't really, like, like I, I guess some people in Italy believe in luck, but, like, a lot of people are not, like, that about it. The way that he's like, I had bad luck! Like, that's very Irish, and I get out of here, Ireland. But also, at the end of the movie, I feel like there's this weird longing. Like, I don't know if it's the writer or the director or some combination, but the tone that I was left with was like, if my family was Italian, things would have worked out. <laughs> and like, first of all, it lifts up a lot of pre-existing tropes about Italian folks, including the idea of like the long-suffering Italian mother who never does anything for herself. And when she does finally find out that her husband is cheating, and she says, don't do it no more. And he says, yes, ma'am. And like... They will never divorce. They will be together until they both die. Yeah. Even if he died tomorrow, she would never see that professor again. Like, nothing would ever happen. Yeah. Her full-time life would be or Mrs. Cosmo's widow. <laughs> and that's a super yeah. harmful stereotype, just on its own. But also, I don't dislike the idea of, like, Danny Aiello thinking, my mother is dying, I need a new mother. I'm going to marry Cher. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's, but that's kind of also, what his character was. Yeah, but that's also a very stereotypical Italian man thing, especially the older son. Mm -hmm. 
And I think that some of these tropes, like I really liked the movie, by the way. I think I gave it four stars and I gave it a little heart as well because I quite enjoyed it. But like a lot of these things, and I'm not trying to like call, like I don't even know what to call it if it's, it's not really racism. Like we're all white people, but like, you know, it's, it's. Ethno stereotyping. Yeah. I mean, it's still stereotyping, I guess is the point I'm trying to make here. When you are swinging the stereotype hammer like that and you're hitting a lot of true things, but also presenting them as like, oh, what a dope. Yeah. Like that's a little, a little dicey. Yeah. It's not necessarily the worst thing that's ever happened to Italians, but like, (laughs) it's not great. Yeah. And it's, it's more than appropriate to feel a way about it. It's one of the things to where I was thinking about what you said and I looked at who wrote and created it. But at the end of the day, the thought that I had was if Kat feels this way, who am I to tell her not to feel it way? Because I'm not an Italian person. The feeling I I had of the like fetishism of the Italian family. Yeah. Is like very it, you know? The idea that, like, I told my mother we were getting married and she was cured because of how much she hates you. Like, that is very Italian, but that's also really harmful. Like, yeah, yeah. And the idea that, like, oh, we're like a complete full family unit now and, like, everything is going to be okay no matter what. Like, that's super invalidating to Olympia Dukakis' feelings, for example. Yeah. Like, or even shares feelings upon discovering the deception there. Yeah. I felt, on the one hand, like, it does a decent job of, like, the mom is like, I think I think Cosmo is cheating. And Loretta, share is like, he isn't. And, like, that's the most Italian thing I've ever heard. What do you mean you think he's cheating? What do you mean? And then he is. And then all, of, all that matters is her and her feelings. Because the mother is a non-character. Yeah. In their minds, she doesn't matter. And that is very Italian. And I wish I could say, like, oh, they're, like, drawing attention to it. But, like, they're not. They're they're stereotyping a whole group of people of which none of them are a part. <laughs> and, like, well, think- just because your stereotypes are right doesn't mean they're not hurtful. You couldn't have gotten someone whose last name ended in a vowel on your fucking writing staff? <laughs> not one? I just needed an I or an A. Maybe an E if it was an Ellis Island situation. Come on. Um, well, Kat, I, I will say that I thought the movie was hilarious. But from my perspective, was it kind of reinforcing stereotypes? I can definitely see where you're coming from from that. I think it was funny a little bit beyond that. But I understand where you're coming from. Oh, I do too. I really liked it. But I do think that like... I'm not going to pretend I didn't notice it. Yeah. But what were some of the things that you liked about the movie? We kind of talked about the comedy, but what were some of the things you this liked is, about the This is a movie about Cher falling in love with Cher. Like, sure, Nicolas Cage happens to be there, and he's doing a lot of toxic Sicilian behavior. <laughs> Don't even get me fucking started on Sicilians. <laughs> Hilarious. <laughs> Uh, no, honestly, like, I, I'm not that kind of Italian, but I do think it's really funny that this movie is like, don't even get me fucking started on Sicilians. Have you seen this shit? And I'm like, none of you are Italian. Like, it just sounds like you're kind of a shithead when you're saying this as an Irish guy. Hilarious. 
Like, I'm sorry, did one of them, like, cheat you at cards one time? Did they not have Guinness in Sicily? What are you mad about? I'm really confused. Um, <laughs> so I like that this movie is actually about Cher falling in love with Cher. I'm like, sure, Nicolas Cage is there, and, like, he's kind of there to, like, provide sex and validation. But, like, it's about her. It is about a 37-year-old Italian woman who has been through, like, the trauma of, of becoming a widow, trying to get her groove back. Yep. And just doing it. She doesn't start caring about herself until she meets Ronnie. And then all of a sudden, she's getting her hair done. She's going to the opera. Even when she just goes over there to talk to him, there's a moment where he's, he says something mean to her, and she just stands up straight. <laughs> yeah. And it's the first time she stood straight up in the entire movie. And at the opera with Cher, she, she looked like a smoke show. Uh, I, I'm officially at the point to where women in their 40s, they're not attractive in spite of being 40, but their 40ness is making them attractive to me. So this movie hit me at the right age. <laughs> yeah, I also think, though, that there's something really beautiful about before she even gets the dress her in the coat and the normal clothes. And I think that the most like sensual and erotic scene in the movie is her changing into that dress in front of the mirror. Because the way that she touches her upper arm, it's like she's seeing herself for the first time. Yeah. And actually, you and know the funny thing And is? it's not like she's seeing herself for the first time because she's a whore or whatever. She's not seeing who she really is. She is like actually able to see herself the way that someone might see her who finds her attractive. And I think there's something so beautiful about seeing that moment. A couple of people have said to me that they did not feel that Cher deserved the Oscar for this. And I am going to personally fist fight every single one of them. And unfortunately that means, Greg, I'm sorry I'm coming for your ass. Hilarious. Hilarious. You know the funny thing is? Even the, the astute idea of her finding herself attractive... Early in the movie, when she's in the flower shop with the rose, she kind of, like, caresses her face with the rose, and she looks pretty beautiful, but she doesn't look at her own reflection. She's not even seeing it for herself, just the audience. She's not even, like, feeling it, really. She kind of yeah. does it, and she's just like, pfft. Like, people have time for romance bullshit. You literally watch the jadedness fall off of her. Yeah. Imagine you're Cher, right? It's 1987. You're Cher. Like, like Cher, you know? Cher, yeah. Yeah, and people are like, it's amazing that she gives this performance of a woman with, like, a lot of confidence but no, like, self-worth or self-love falling in yeah. love with herself. Yeah. Like, what? <laughs> That's not a thing we see in movies. Still! Yeah, for real. Like, re realistically, the best example of this I have seen in a movie recently is in fucking Barb and Star Go to Vista Del Mar, which that movie fucks. <laughs> That's your favorite movie of the year. Uh, yeah, my favorite movie of the year last year. <laughs> but, like, you don't see that. Women don't get to have that. And there are a lot of movies about men, like, getting their groove back. But usually it's, like, with women, it's always, like, about a man. Yeah. And with men, it's usually in spite of a woman they're getting their groove back. 
Nicolas Cage is definitely there to grease the gears, but really it's a movie about Cher realizing that she can't marry Danny Aiello and falling in love with herself and realizing that maybe also falling in love with Nick Cage is fine. Yeah. So here's who Cher beat in Best Actress at the 60th Academy Awards. She beat Glenn Close in Fatal Attraction. I would give it to Cher. She beat Sally Kirkland in Anna, which... Okay. Uh, she beat Merle, Merle Streep, and Ironweed. I've never seen that, so I can't judge. Now, she beat Holly Hunter in Broadcast News. I Ooh. will say, I 1 million percent love Holly Hunter in, in Broadcast News. So, yeah. yeah. That's it. But that's the only one that feels close. But I also, again, that, yes. like. Listen, I get the Academy is very, like, whatever. But I am wondering if the Academy was approaching it as, wait, this is Cher. Did anybody expect this out of Cher? And the answer is no, they did not. No. no. I also think, though, that, like, Olympia Dukakis is a powerhouse in this movie. What do you do? I'm a professor. I teach communication at NYU. That woman was a student of yours? Sheila? Yeah, she was. Is. Was. Hmm. No saying my mother told me you want to hear it? Sure. Don't shit where you eat. Yeah, I love, like, love the I, dinner I scene. get that the movie is about Cher in the way that movies are about Earth. Like, of course. <laughs> like, Olympia Dukakis is like the center of the sun in this movie. She is the only one holding this whole thing together. Yeah. She is the center of gravity. She is everything in this movie even in scenes she's not in and i think it's really interesting that this movie does such a good job of everything is defined by what rose thinks yes yes cosmo buys that bracelet for rita because rose wouldn't like it is that her (laughs) name i think that's her name the professor has to be set up with those young guys so we can see her judge him and loosen herself up a little bit yeah she covers for Loretta. When Loretta sees her father with Rita, her first thought is, what is mom going to think? Yeah. And the great romance of the movie is Cher going, wait, what, is, what does she think? What do I think? Never mind what she thinks. I have to live with me for the rest of my life. And that's fucking beautiful. Also, now, Jesus Christ, can somebody get Nick Cage some Valium or something? I mean... <laughs> I was an Italian man completely flying off the handle, and then an Italian woman going, all right, so can we talk? Is like, <laughs> like when his little tantrum's over, and she's just like, is there somewhere we can talk now that you're done? Like, that's yeah. very much the vibe. Chef's kiss. Like, that was it. I was like, ah, oh, well. There were, there were uh, a couple scenes in this where I was like, everybody shut up. The Italians are talking. And, like, you can <laughs> kind of tell. Cher is Italian, I presume, or at least... Italian passing and Nick Cage's last name is fucking Coppola if he's not Italian like run me over with a truck I don't give a shit the Coppola's are Italian yes I mean you would hope but you you never know these days so Cher is oh no Cher is (laughs) she is nowhere near She's nowhere near the Italian peninsula. She's Irish, English, German, and Cherokee. <laughs> Holy shit. Wow. 
shit. Where did she grow was, up? She's from California. Well, that was her mom. So her mom is Irish, English, German, and Cherokee, and her dad is Armenian. So I okay. She, I do she, feel she like watched, though, in this case, like I don't, I can't speak to like how Armenian folk interact with each other, like in romantic situations or whatever. But I do feel like a lot of the food tradition is very similar. Like both Italians and Armenians really like value food and that's an integral part of their heritage. There's usually one or two places where all of the like Italians go. There's usually one or two places where all the Armenians go. Like I do feel like a lot of the like Italian American and Armenian American things. I'm putting things in quotes. I'm not an expert, but like a lot of those things overlap. Okay. Because, like, I really think the thing that's the most interesting is the differences between Italian-Americans and (laughs) Italian-Italians. And I think that this movie somehow does a really good job of capturing that. Yeah. The fact that the mother stops dying out of spite for Cher. But Olympia Dukakis, (laughs) whenever something happens she doesn't like, she's like, well, I'm not going to say anything because who am I to say anything but... (laughs) whereas the other woman like jumped out of bed and was like my staying alive is the only thing that's going to stop this so i'm going to stay alive and i'm going to start cooking for everybody (laughs) so clearly somebody understands the difference but not (laughs) not enough to get some italian writers though (laughs) well again like i think just it's so weird to me that the note it ends on is like if we had been italian my parents wouldn't have gotten divorced like, that's so much the vibe at the end of it. This, like, aspirational yeah. Italianness. Yeah. Which is, I, like, I d- not real. The idea that, like, she says, stop seeing her, and he says, okay, and the idea is that they're just still in love. That's it. Yeah. Like, that's oh, it. of course they're still in love. Like, he just took a detour to Stupidville. Like, <laughs> it's not how it works. <laughs> I love maybe, the dismount. Maybe it was in 1987 when they had already been married for 40 years. Because I'll be honest, wasn't alive then, don't know. So, like, maybe that was I just was diapers. the thing. I love the dismount of the film where the guy's crying. He says, why are you crying? I'm confused. <laughs> that shit was so funny to me. <laughs> but I also liked, and this this is another one of those things that I felt fit the tone correctly, where he like walked up and handed him a glass of champagne, Danny Aiello, and he goes, "Well, you're part of the family, aren't you? Like, not in the way you necessarily intended, but you are. Yeah. So get in here. Come on in." <laughs> but that that to me is perhaps like the most quote unquote. Italian thing about the movie is the idea that like anyone everyone is family you just haven't met yet yeah because that's always been my experience with Italians Italian Americans it seems like the guiding principle in a lot of ways of Italianness is that there are all these people out there who are your family you just don't know yeah and you don't even have to like them the dad doesn't like Johnny and he's still like, there are pictures in the credits at the end of him coming to Christmas. Yeah. But you don't have to like your family. Yeah, but they're still family. Yeah. You just gotta love them. <laughs> oh, man. Live from an undisclosed location in a basement in New York City, it's me, Crank, ruler, well, 
mayor of Dimension X and the producer of the hottest new pod in that dimension or this one, The Shredhead Pod, starring the Blasian Betty, aka Google Chrome Dome, aka Ado Nobu Nigga, aka my best friend, Oroku Saki, aka The Shredder. And we put aside our differences with the Ninja Turtles to be your weekly source of hot takes, sports, and entertainment news. Stay all the way and hear who Saki has named as his Cretan of the Week, and find something valuable in the Shred Commendations. So we'll see you on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever your pods are cast. The Shredhead Pod is a member of the Hyphen Podcast Group. Before we get out of here, though, I did kind of tease it a little bit because I did want to follow up with you on it. But what do you think of Bodies, Bodies, Bodies? I'm very curious. What do you think about it? I liked it a lot more in theory than I did in practice. Oh, really? Yeah, I thought it was good, just not great. So first of all, I noticed that there are some like A24 isms that I'm just starting to get a little tired of. (laughs) <laughs> um, explain <laughs> they do a lot of the same type of scares in every movie they do a lot of the same camera movements they do a lot of the same like tricks with music and stuff yeah. which is fine but like when they also have like three or four or five or six or ten or fifteen movies coming out a year you know the funny thing you is notice. I, didn't, I didn't realize they put out like five movies this summer like six movies yeah. this summer yeah like yeah bitches out. Like, yeah and that's fine like it's nice to have a signature but there's a difference between having a signature and having like your fingerprints on everything yeah additionally i felt like and i think this is my biggest problem with it upon re- i really enjoyed it while watching it but upon reflection i realized that it had none of the like heart that scream had or knives out had it doesn't oh, yeah. it does a really good job of parodying the genre while still being a good example of the genre but I don't feel that it loves the genre. Oh, yeah. I like, felt like I, I, it was like, oh, my God. Can you believe people watch these fucking slasher movies? Ugh. And I get that that's like a very, like, Gen Z way to, like, think of things. And I get that I'm also technically, like, I'm right on the line between Gen Z and Millennial, depending on how you count. But this wasn't even insincere. I was going to say. It was you, you apathetic. Quite- I was going to say, you question if they like horror movies. I question if they even like people. (laughs) I question if they even like movies. Like, I'll be entirely honest. I thought that the cast was great. I thought the story was great. I I thought the kills were good. I laughed so hard when they revealed what actually happened to Pete Davidson. Yes. I thought I deviated my own septum from laughter. Also, fuck Pete Davidson. I hate that guy. <laughs> well, so uh, I'll be honest. I saw a comedy set of his in 2019, and it was 45 minutes of him making fun of developmentally challenged people, specifically Not people surprised. on the autism spectrum and people with Down syndrome. And Down syndrome runs in my family. I've had several family members with it, and it really bothers me when people make fun of them for something they can't yeah. control, especially if you're not doing anything new. Yeah. If you're finding a way to bring some levity to a really dark situation, that's one thing. But he was just kicking people while they were down and going, they make funny noises. Hey, what? Like, I'm right. And people were eating that shit up. 
not surprised on both counts. And it so. made it, it really truly upset me. Yeah. And I, I generally have a fairly thick skin where these things are concerned. Because, like, I get it. It's comedy. I get if you have five minutes of jokes that I don't agree with. Mm-hmm. Or ten. But if the crux of your entire set is people with downs make funny noises, fuck you. Bitch, I'm telling you the truth. But I love uh. Lee Pace, and I've been a huge Lee Pace fan for years. I used to watch Pushing Daisies every Wednesday night at 8 o'clock when it came on. It was my favorite show. <laughs> and it still is. I watch it all the time. And I, I thought all the performances were good. I thought the story was good. And I thought the apathy with which the film was made was really disappointing. Because, like, Hide and Seek is the movie that comes to mind as, like, the direct kind of comparison here. Hmm. And that movie takes so much joy in taking the piss out of the genre shit and the genre tropes. And also taking the piss out of privileged white people and like all the things this movie is trying to do. And it does a really good job. Yeah. I thought it was funny as shit. I legit think I laughed the most in the theater I was at. So yeah, I mean, um, I think it's very funny. Yeah. But I agree. Like the heart of there's no heart. It's completely hollow. Yeah. It's like a souffle. There's nothing in there. Yeah. If you're going to have a horror movie, the heart will give it stakes. And I the think, heart will give it rewatchability. I do wonder that. I do wonder if I will see it again, but also how it will age. You know what I think they tried to do? I think they tried to give the heart into the relationship between the two main characters, but it was kind of no, like. Didn't buy it at all. Not for two yeah, seconds. I was bored yeah. by them immediately. Yeah. Like, I, I hate to be like that, but like. In a horror movie, stable, boring people are boring. But like <laughs> I mean, were, you got a point. But, al- but also, they're like, oh, we've been together six weeks. <laughs> I've had hangnails that have lasted longer than that. <laughs> the fuck was out that, of here. Was that a commentary on, how, on, like, the stereotype of lesbians moving too fast? <laughs> I guess. Um, but, well, no. So I thought that. But then they did, like, oh, I've known Greg for two weeks. I think that the rewatchability was hampered a lot by yeah. the fact that there were no, like, emotional stakes, really. Yeah. And it wasn't like, oh, all the friends are so likable, and then there's this horrible reveal that actually they're not. Like, they're just all, like, not good people from the start. Yeah. So when they die, it doesn't really matter. I see you coming from. I see you coming And, like, from. I still think it was fun, and it was good, and, like, I'd probably watch it once maybe more to like see if i could pick up on any of the easter eggs ahead of time i would stream it maybe once again but like only if it popped up on hbo max or a streaming service i already had i'm not gonna pay to see it again i appreciate that scream scream 2022 or 2021 i don't remember what year it was 2022 uh god was it did (laughs) did a lot of loving subversions of pre-existing tropes right yeah and we're like, the idea of like, wait until you find out what the subversion of these tropes are is like, oh, there was no subversion of these tropes. I wonder how they could have approached it a little bit differently, but I just think they put too much stock in that relationship and it was kind of like, yeah. I think one of them needed to actually be an interesting character. We needed to have yeah. one character with like an inner life that we cared about even a little outside of she's in recovery. Because like, no, <laughs> the fuck she isn't. She pretty immediately is like, God, things are stressful. Let me do a massive amount of cocaine. Yeah. And, like, I'm glad I saw it. It was fine. But, like, 
I hope this team gets another shot at movies further on down the line because I think that they have the potential to do some really great stuff. I thought the direction was really good. A huge problem I had, though, was that we could hear the music from Nope next door very clearly. Holy shit. So there were no, like, quiet <laughs> moments. Oh, damn. Nah, that, that kind of fucks it up. Oh. You need some quietness in it. Yeah, I also, like, got some, like, audio spoilers for Nope. But the like, movie was so loud, it spoiled it. Goddamn. Oh, I, I felt like I was in a 4D movie seat. I Jesus. was vibrating the whole time and not in a fun way. You know, like, I feel like I'm sitting in the Batmobile way. <laughs> in the trunk of the Batmobile. Yeah. <laughs> Damn, that sucks, though. If you've enjoyed the episode, please subscribe, rate us five stars, Leave a review and tell a friend to tell a friend. Follow Cat at Cat underscore Chinetti on Twitter, Twitch, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Follow Marcus at Show in Mad Love, S H O W I N M A D L O V on Twitter and Letterboxd. Follow the show on Twitter at Cat and Mark. This podcast is executive produced by Kellen Conley and Eric Greenlee. Thanks for listening. We should do this again sometime. This is a hyphen podcast production. Are you not entertained?